0: Expectations. What are expectations? Well, it's what we're anticipating. It's what we are are looking for, what we project or think we're going to see. And psychologists have told us for years what you expect uh, is huge because oftentimes what you expect to happen, you are setting the stage for that to unfold. They call it a self-fulfilling prophecy. When you go into relationships with expectations. Uh, You hamper or you help those. Every area of life, when you go to work, when you go to a ball game, your expectations play a huge part on what eventually will happen, especially what happens in your life. In Mark chapter 3 this morning, starting in verse 1, we're going to look at expectations. Expectations we have in a very important realm and our relationship with God. And that's about when we come to the house of God, what are we expecting to happen? Here's my first thought. Some people come to church. Some people come to their youth group. Some people go to their Bible study class with no expectations whatsoever. Not good, not bad, not indifferent. They're just, they don't have any expectations on what's going to happen. In verse 1, our story begins. It says, another time... He, being Jesus, went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Now, a little background. The synagogue literally meant the congregation or the gathering. And in Jesus' day, uh, it was the congregation, the gathering of the Jewish people to worship. It was their place they went to do what we're doing this morning, to sing to God, to be educated, to hear teaching, to hear preaching, uh, and to fellowship. The temple... We're more familiar with the temple because it gets a lot more play in the Bible. It was the national expression of their relationship to God. The the synagogue was the, the local expression. In other words, the synagogue was like our local church, okay? And it's interesting, we are told throughout Scripture in the New Testament that Jesus constantly went to the synagogue. He was a very active church member to use our terms. Now, the Sabbath day for a Jewish person in Jesus' time began Friday night at sundown and ended Saturday night on sundown. So, they would go to what we would say their worship service, Saturday, probably Saturday morning, much like we do on Sunday morning. Now, we moved to Sunday morning in the book of Acts to the Christian worship for two fundamental reasons. One, it was a way of celebrating the resurrection. It happened on Sunday. It said, listen, this is our Super Bowl day. We celebrate it once a week. Also, it separated Christianity from Judaism, at least in, in the forms or the times when they worship. On this particular day, Jesus is there. And there's a man there It says he had a shriveled hand. In Luke chapter 6, now this story is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels or the seal-like gospels. They tell a lot of the same stories, but they're told from different eyewitnesses, so you get different details. Here it says, on another Sabbath, this is the same story. He went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Now, we're going to see in a moment that that's going to be an important thing, uh, being his right hand. Now, we we think and most scholars think that his hand was shriveled, not he wasn't born that way, but that he had had some kind of an accident that had rendered his muscles and his nerves basically uh, paralyzed. So his, his hand was, was drawn up. There was no known cure at this time being his right hand uh, too. It was significant. And in the synagogues in Jesus' day, the men and the women sat separate. Wouldn't that have been kind of cool? Not when you're a teenager. When you're old like me, it wouldn't matter, right? But the men would sit up toward the front and the women toward the back. And one of the things that they would do when they, when they would pray, they would stand and lift their hands in prayer. And this man, probably, it was, it was probably pretty noticeable when he, he stood and he lifted his shriveled hand uh, in prayer. And so he was probably known or, or, or well-known in the community and in that synagogue. Now, we'll get back more of that in a moment. But, you know, I wonder, as I've read this story a lot this week, did that guy come to worship that day saying, you know what, this Jesus guy may be here. This was probably in Capernaum where he had been in Galilee. And I might encounter Jesus and my life might be changed. Or did he come in the synagogue like many of us came in here this morning going, You know what? It's Saturday. i got to go to worship. I don't want you to raise your hands because you'd hurt my feelings and it'd embarrass you. But I wonder how many of you came in here today, not with negative expectations, but with no expectations. Some of you men... You have a little ring in your nose, and your wife pulled you here this morning. Amen, honey. Keep up the good work. Maybe some of you women were dragged by your husband. Certainly some on the front rows were possibly brought here by force. I was brought by force to church for many years as a a youth. And I want to tell you something today. If you came with no expectations of anything happening and you're here, amen, I am so glad you're in the house today. Isn't that right? Is there a bad reason to be in church? Yes, if you're going to shoot me and bomb the church, that is a really bad reason. But if you are here, I don't really care why you are here. Just stay awake and stay with us. God may do something great in your life before this hour is over. But here's the second thing. Some people come to the house of God with a critical spirit. Now, none of you are that way, right? But you know someone like, how many of you know someone that has a critical problem? Amen, yeah. Point at, no, I'm teasing, don't point at them. Some people come to the house of God like they go everywhere else with a critical spirit. What did these guys look like? They were aloof. They were arrogant. Probably had a little more money than the average person in the synagogue. Much more education than the average person in the synagogue. They weren't teachable because they knew it all. They had had read the books, they'd been there, they had done that. And they approached the house of God with a critical spirit. I'm going to phrase it a little different way. Some people are just looking for something to be unhappy about, aren't they? Again, you're not that person, but you know that person. In verse 1 and 2 in our story, another time he went into the synagogue and a man was there with a shriveled hand Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Doesn't that sound like a godly reason to be in worship? So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. In in Matthew 12, a little different twist, a man with a shriveled hand was there, And they, looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they ask him a question. We'll look at the question more in a moment. But literally, the the tense of the verbiage used in Matthew and Mark is this, is that these people were constantly looking for something to to be wrong. Did you get that? It, It wasn't just this particular Saturday or this particular Sabbath. Their spirit was, and their spirit on this Saturday morning was, they were looking for something to be unhappy about. Now, another interesting tidbit about the synagogue. The the, the Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling high court. It consisted of 70 members. Now, they wouldn't have all been in this synagogue in Capernaum, but there may have been some of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees were Sanhedrin, they got special places in church. In other words, they had the, the seats right up here. And probably they waited, knowing these guys, they waited till the service got started. And instead of slipping in the back of the balcony like, like a lot of people do, and I don't care, you can walk down right in the middle, but these guys probably made a show of coming and sitting in these important places right here. And part of their job, and this wasn't all bad, part of their job was to make sure that nothing was taught, nothing was done, that was wrong or against God, but they took it to an extreme. They begin to see themselves as the police of the things of God. Folks, I want to tell you this morning: if you're looking for something in life to be unhappy about, you will find it everywhere, every time. Did you get that? Everywhere, every time. And it doesn't just happen here. I want to tell you: if this is if this is who you are this morning. I, I know very well this is just not your approach at church. This is your approach everywhere. You watched a game yesterday. You went to a game yesterday. You watched a game Friday night. And you're smarter than the coaches. And the players, they're lazy. And the band doesn't play loud enough. And those cheerleader skirts, they need to be a lot longer. I agree with that most of the time. Sorry, girls. If you're looking for something that's wrong, you will find it every time. No question about it. No problem in that. But I want to tell you this, and this is where a problem comes in. This comes from a troubled person. You see, the Pharisees thought they were just smarter than everybody, and most critical people. Most critical people live with the delusion that they are just smarter than everybody else. They've just got it figured out. I had a friend. And he's a friend in another state who is a very pessimistic person, and if you called him on that, here's what he's going to say: "I'm just a realist. I just see things as they are." No, you're not. He's the negative person. This comes from a heart problem. In verse three through five. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. And Jesus asked them, Which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Jesus looked around at them in anger. That's pretty powerful. And he was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he heals the man. The word stubborn hearts there literally means hardened hearts. It it meant a a callousness that had come through months and weeks and years of being arrogant and aloof and unteachable. You see, people, people just don't approach church or life with a critical spirit without there being something wrong here. In my first church, there was a lady that was visiting our church for a while. And, you know, when you run 40 nobody escapes your attention, okay? When the church runs for, if you miss a Sunday, you're getting a call on Monday because we know you're gone. And she'd been coming a while, and she hadn't joined, and so I was visiting with her outside of church, and I said, well, are you going to continue to come to our church? Are you going to join? And I knew she was kind of mean, and here's what she said to me. She said, I'm going to stay at that church to keep an eye on you and keep an eye on what's going on at that church. And I was a little 20-something-year-old coward, and I said, yes, (laughs) ma'am. You know what I'd say to her today? I'd say, God bless you, sister. but You got to go to a church where you're going to meet God, not stay here to be our policewoman. And as I knew her later on, there were some real issues going on here. You see, the Pharisees came to the house of God where Jesus Christ was, And their expectations was, we're going to find out what's wrong. We're going to see what he's doing wrong. And you better believe this wasn't the first time they'd been in church with that attitude. And it came from two things, a bad heart and a bad understanding of the Word of God. You see, what they were going to try to catch Jesus on was on honoring the Sabbath, now, I'm going to be really hard for just a second and say this. My generation and under, we have thrown out honoring the Sabbath. We have said, oh, that's law. We're under grace. We, You know, baloney. Ten commandments apply today just like they did 2,000 years ago, 4,000, 6,000 years ago. And it's interesting of the Ten Commandments, the one that gets more verbiage than anything else is on honoring the Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? More than commit adultery, more than don't commit don't commit adultery. Let me rephrase that. I can hear that being used against me this week. Honey, the preacher said <laughs> it's too close to budget time too. Raise, no raise, all that. Don't commit adultery, don't murder. But the one that got the most verbiage was honor of the Sabbath. Isn't that weird? Because here's why because God wanted us, them, and us to take one day a week, one day a week, six days you play, you party, you run, you do, you take one day and you come and you worship God. One day you're different from the world. One day you rest and recuperate psychologically and physically. One day, you no, know, that's great, but here's what the Pharisees had done. The Pharisees said, hey, the Bible's good, but it's not good enough. And they literally added 39 laws on top on how to obey the Sabbath. Now, is that not creepy? Folks, let me tell you something. We get in trouble any time we look at the Bible and we say, the Bible's not enough, we better add this to it. And Baptists have been bad about that at times. Amen or oh, no. The Bible's good enough; it really is. They added thirty-nine laws. They had. Listen, you could you could lift like ten pounds on the Sabbath, but if you lifted fifteen, sin. You could walk twenty-five steps, but if you went twenty-six, sin. I fall and break my arm. Will runs up here. Will is a good Jew. Let's say he cannot. All he can do, if he's going to obey their idea of the law, is stabilize it. You'll have to set the bone tomorrow, so I've got a really bad night ahead. If a woman's having birth, you can deliver the baby. You don't fix a problem. You just settle it. You fix it tomorrow. Some believe you didn't even pray for someone to be healed on the Sabbath because that was breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus said, you're crazy. Here's a man with a shriveled hand, his right hand, Legend said he was a bricklayer, a mason, probably right-handed because most people are probably right-handed. And you're saying, I'm doing wrong by healing this guy on Sunday, on Saturday for them. You see, when we when we come into the house of God, and, and listen, I'm not trying to say that that me or any preacher is always right, any music's always right, any Sunday school, t- and that you shouldn't talk about and try to make things better. But I'm saying when your heart or my heart is habitually critical, there is a problem with our understanding of God in our, pr- our, our heart, okay? Let me tell you, and, and these things cause problems, okay? You see, w- w- when, when we have critical expectations... We bring it into the house of God. It creates more problems. Here's the first thing. We miss others in need. Here's the guy with a real problem. Folks, uh, everybody look at me just one second. Look around you. Just, just kind of glance around you from left to right. You are looking at people who have problems. Some of you are going, yeah, I'm staring at somebody right now, and they really are, they're a weirdo. They're out there. No, back off. <laughs> but the Pharisees, the guys who were the most educated in the Bible Came to the house of God And they missed all those around them who were hurting You see, when, when you think you got it figured out And you think that God's appointed you to be the policeman For everybody else You're going to miss those in need Here's the second thing that ought to bother us you anger Jesus with this attitude. In verse five in verse five, it says, "Jesus looked around at them in anger, and he was deeply distressed. That biblical word "anger" there is not the word that means he blew up. It meant that he had a settled disturbance in his spirit. It, it meant Jesus was, was angry at their behavior. You know, if, if nothing else I say this morning doesn't get our attention, this should. When you and I approach life and God and worship with a critical, haughty spirit, it angers God Almighty. Nothing else, that ought to bother you. Okay? Here's the third thing you miss God. You miss God. I'm not going to read him again right now. Jesus has this guy stand up and he heals him. I mean, it's flat out a miracle. Nobody can dispute that. Nobody can dispute it. Well, I am going to read them. Let's look at verse 6, what happened after they healed him. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Who were the Herodians? These were a group of Jewish people who were really considered traitors to their fellow Jews. They lined themselves up with the Roman government. Herod Antipas, uh, hence the Herodians, Herod Antipas was the ruler of this part of Galilee. And these Jewish people, Herodians, said, we are supportive of Herod and the Roman government. Normally the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other because the Pharisees were devout Jews and they weren't going to associate with a Gentile, non-Jew, period, much less a Jewish person who was kissing up to the Roman government. But have you ever noticed this? Critical people can always find critical people. Have you ever noticed that? It's the weirdest thing in the world. You get somebody who's unhappy, and I guarantee you within a month, they have found someone else who agrees with them. And there is an unholy alliance that has created. I had a drug addict in one of my churches in Texas. He was a Christian, and he would do real well 95% of the time. Then he would fall off the wagon He'd go on a binge, then he'd come back home, dry out, and he'd be good for six months. And I asked him one time, I said, how, how do you disappear? You go into a town you've never been into before, and you can find crack just like that. You know what he said? If you're looking for the wrong things, you can always find the wrong things. You, if you're looking for trouble, if you're looking, if you're looking to find things you shouldn't find, you have a sense of where to go to find him. The Herodians and the Pharisees become buddies. Now tell me if you don't think this is interesting. They're mad at Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, okay? And now they're plotting to murder him on the Sabbath. Is there not a little irony in that? Boy, we don't want that deacon healing someone on the Sabbath. We need to kill him. Now, biblically, killing a deacon is justified most of the time, but not a pastor. They miss God. They miss God. I want to ask you a question this morning. How many of us this morning are going to miss God? We're tired. I understand. I'm tired too. They didn't have donuts over here. I didn't get my sugar high in between the two services. I'm a little grouchy. 1999, I was pastoring a church in Texas. Easter Sunday, we had about 300. That was a full house for us. Easter Sunday, three people came down during the invitation and got saved. Now, if that happened this morning here, it would be tremendous. That was really tremendous there. Here's the really weird thing about it. They were out-of-state visitors visiting with families. You, you following me? I mean, it wasn't like they're going to get baptized here and they're, they're in the community. These were three people. I, two of them I never saw again. And they came down that morning, and they got saved on Easter Sunday and said, this was great. We're going back to California, man. We'll find a church there. God bless you. It's like, wow. It was just God. It was just God. Friday morning, I'm still, I mean, my feet aren't touching the ground. I am still, I am so excited about it. I get a knock on my door at home. Friday's my day off. It's a little old man in my church, a little older man, who's got a little bit of a critical problem. And he comes in. I let him in. I live in the parsonage. And this should have been a warning to me. The first thing he says, he walks in, he's looking around. I've never been in the parsonage before. And when he left, I was thinking, and you never will be again. (laughs) He sat down in my den and for 30 minutes told me, how terrible that last Sunday was, how bad the music was, how when I I tried to make people laugh and wasn't very effective there or here, and he didn't like that, and he didn't like this, and he didn't like that. And I let it ruin my weekend for sure. But later on, as I began to think about that, that guy completely missed God. All the great things that happened. He came to church about twice a year He came with a critical spirit, and God worked in our midst, and he missed it completely. You want to miss God? It's easy to do. Just come in with the wrong heart. But I want to give you a challenge this morning. Come to church expecting to meet God. Go to your Bible study class expecting to meet God. Go to your youth group expecting to meet God. In Switzerland, several years ago, moms and dads, listen to this, they did a huge study on why are kids dropping out of church when they go to college and they get past college. And and that's a terrible phenomenon in our country. And it has been for 20, 30 years that young people, a lot of them who grow up in church, when they get out on their own, they quit going to church, period. Here's what the, the, the statistics they found out. The best chance you have If you've got a mother and a dad, mom and dad, who consistently come to church and consistently bring their kids with them, okay? That ups the ante hugely on your kids when they're 25 and they're 30, them staying in church. And they're, by the way, bringing your grandkids to church. But the statistics are still troubling in that even with a mom and dad doing that, a lot of young people don't come into church. And, and here's, here's why I think that happens. Here's a couple reasons. One is they don't see mom and dad living out at home. I mean if dad's cussing on the way home about the traffic or about the ball game on the radio, uh, there's a disconnect there, and your, your kids get that. Here's another reason. I think, I think too many young people, When I grew up in a, a church culture, they go to church with their parents, and they hear their mom and dad on the way home talk about the preaching wasn't good, the music wasn't good, the deacons don't know what they're doing, the Sunday school teacher doesn't know what they're doing. And you know what? It, that, that wasn't my parents, but if that would have been my parents, I don't think I would have been fired up about staying in church either. So what do you do? You live it. And you bring your kids, and you bring your kids and say, listen, we're coming to the house of God to meet with God. Number one, it is not a feeling, okay? See, this is where a lot of us get confused. How many of you remember the Boston song, More Than a Feeling? How many of you are old enough to remember that? I proposed to Cindy to that song. No, I didn't. But it sounded funny. Okay, this man who got healed, I bet you he went home. I bet he was dancing. I bet he was doing everything with his hand. I bet he was super excited. But you notice in the text, it never mentions how he fell. Feelings are wonderful, but feelings are not a sign that God's in our midst. God is far more than a feeling. I love to leave here crying, emotional, and with goosebumps. But I want to tell you, in hell this morning, people are crying, and they're emotional, and they have goosebumps. I can go to Rocky and still get teary-eyed. I cried when I saw Steel Magnolias because it was killing me to watch that movie. <laughs> when is this going to be over, God? That's a great thing about getting married, guys. You don't have to go to any more chick flicks. I'll have a feeling about that later, too, won't it? <laughs> see, don't come to church expecting every week, if I meet God, I got to cry, I got I to gotta shout, I got to scream. Listen, I wish our church shouted and screamed more. I wish we had people raising their hands and, and that'd be great. But it's more than that, okay? It's more than that. When you come to, to church expect to meet God, it's more than a feeling. Let me tell you a second thing. You'll see miracles happen When you come expecting it You sure will Verse 5 He looked around at them in anger He was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts And he said to the man Stretch out your hand He stretched it out And the hand was completely restored Right hand Maybe he was a bricklayer Probably hadn't worked in years Bad situation And Jesus says be healed And he's healed A miracle happened Let me tell you We have seen miracles happen in this church over and over and over in the last three or four weeks. We have seen person after person come and give their life to Christ. Last Sunday, it was Sylvia. Three three weeks ago at Revival, it was about 30 people. You know, the greatest miracle in the Bible is not a shriveled hand being healed. It's a lost soul being saved. You come to church expecting God to work, and you will see miracles happen. And let me give you a last thing. You will be changed, too. You'll be changed. The man with the shriveled hand went home changed, folks. He went home changed. I don't know what his expectations were, but I can tell you when he went back to the synagogue that next Saturday, he was expecting to meet God, wasn't he? And God will work in your life. He'll work in your marriage. He'll work in your heart. You may say, well, the changes are slow. I'm not seeing them. Real change takes time. It's like going to the gym and working out for two weeks and going, I'm still fat and flabby. Yes, you are. It's going to take time to look like me or Arnold Schwarzenegger. You've got to eat your way into this. It takes time. Josh, Josh said, that's funny. Appreciate your enthusiasm. How many of you get e-thoughts? E-thoughts, it's a... It's a a devotional. You need to get it. You can get on our church website and get it. This, this last week, Perry Lassiter, one of our wonderful church members, wrote an ethos about a guy he knew whose last name was Weaver. Perry's like 120, so this guy had to be at like 160, or would be now if he was still alive. But Perry met this guy when he was in his 80s in the 1960s. So this happened in the early 1900s when this man, Weaver, was a teenager. True story. He got got into it with somebody. And he said, I'm going to kill that person. And he literally got a gun and he put it, a pistol, and he put it in his coat. And he said, I'm going to go out and I'm going to kill that guy. He said he walked around town that night. It was raining. It was cold and he couldn't find him. And he looked, and there was a church, and he could see they were having a service. He said, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to dry up a little bit and, you know, warm up. Then I go back out on my pursuit. He went in that church with no expectation at all of meeting God. He sat and he listened to the preaching. When the invitation came, Mr. Weaver walked down that aisle and he got saved. And he was on his hands and knees at the altar and he looked to the left of him. And guess who was to the left of him who got saved that night? The guy he was looking to murder. Perry said 60 something years later, he knew that weaver, Brother Weaver, a devout pastor whose life was altered forever and for eternity because he went into a service and he met God. And the same God that healed the shriveled hand and that changed a murderer's heart is the same God that will meet you this morning if you'll let him. Let's pray. If you're a Christian, I just want to challenge you today to challenge your expectations, to challenge your heart. If you're not a Christian, right where you're seated, would you pray with me and just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I want to repent of my sins. I believe you're God's Son who died and and who arose for me. Jesus, come into my heart and save me this morning. Let me have your attention just for a second. We're going to stand. i want to challenge you to respond to God. God's here. God wants to meet you. God wants to change you today. Some of you need a miracle. The Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. you got to respond. Maybe you just ask Christ in your heart or you're ready to do that. You come in a moment. We'll be waiting for you down here. Maybe you'd like to join the church. We would love for you to do that. One way you can join is just by easing down the aisle in a moment. We'll help you join. Christian, maybe where you're standing, maybe at the altar on your knees or praying with a minister, you need to say to God, God, I repent for my critical spirit. God, I want to lift the flag up for myself in this church, and I want to always come in here expecting to meet you. Let's stand, and as God leads you today,